You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 262, The Raid on Pikaway. In our last episode, the British in Georgia and South Carolina forced what was left of any organized resistance into the western mountains. Leaders, including Elijah Clark, Francis Marion, and Thomas Sumter, all had to escape from British and Loyalist forces under the overall command of General Charles Cornwallis. Now, Cornwallis's main focus in late 1780 was in securing the more heavily settled eastern parts of the southern colonies and then moving north to secure North Carolina and hopefully eventually Virginia. With a limited number of men, his main focus kept him looking forward. As I discussed last time, Cornwallis devoted almost none of his resources to securing the lands in Georgia and South Carolina that he already considered retaken. Major Patrick Ferguson had the responsibility to raise new provincial regiments from within the conquered colonies, mostly with the support of other provincial regiments that had been sent south from New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Raising new regiments and pacifying the colonies had proven, well, disappointing for the British. But as the summer of 1780 wore on, the British position seemed to improve, especially following the destruction of the Continental Army at Camden. The British also hoped to recruit more native warriors to support the king in his time of need. As I've discussed before, a great many native tribes really hoped to remain neutral in what they saw as a fight between two different groups of Europeans. That is mostly what the Continentals wanted, since if the natives did take a side, it was likely going to be with the British. The history of native involvement in the Revolution follows a similar sad pattern to native interactions with Europeans both before and after the war. For the most part, tribes wanted to stay out of fights between others, but they frequently had to deal with encroachments into their land. When they saw an opportunity to do something about it, they would fight, often brutally. But almost always, the enemy would mount an even larger and more brutal campaign against them, usually forcing them to cede more land and move further west with their survivors. I've already covered in some past episodes the Iroquois in western New York, who sided with the British operating out of Quebec and who had been forced by the Sullivan Campaign in 1779 to move into what is today Canada. To the south of the Iroquois were the Delaware, Mingo, and Shawnee, who controlled the Ohio Valley. Below them were the Cherokee, who controlled the areas west of settlements in Virginia and North Carolina. And south of the Cherokee were the Creek and Choctaw, which dominated the areas west of Georgia and South Carolina, as well as parts of Florida. Now, none of these tribes were particularly unified, and there were many sub-tribes within these larger populations, which I won't discuss too much, as I could probably write an entire book on that topic alone. I have discussed in earlier episodes how especially the Cherokee tried to take advantage of the divisions early in the war to take back territory in the Carolinas, only to be beaten badly and forced to cede more land. British agents hoped to use this discontent to encourage the native warriors to back the British efforts to subdue the rebellious colonies. 
British agents argued convincingly that the government in Britain was the Indians' best hope of holding back the westward expansion that the colonists wanted. As such, many local tribes were willing to give some backing to the British, but it never became a united all-out effort that might have made a real difference. I did mention last week that Colonel Thomas Brown was meeting with Creek leaders in Augusta, Georgia, when they were attacked by Elijah Clark's militia. This resulted in the British chasing Clark's militia into the western part of North Carolina that was still being disputed by settlers and natives. Most of those doing the chasing were Creek and Cherokee warriors, who had been the main defense available to Brown at Augusta. These loyalist forces chased down and hanged many of the men they captured. They burned farms that belonged to the families of men who had taken up arms against the king and were by this time on the run. As a result of all this loyalist action, Clark's forces, which had been fighting in Georgia and South Carolina, were now in western North Carolina with about 300 men and about 400 women and children who were families of the militiamen. Although the British still considered the area where Clark's men ended up to be Cherokee territory, the Cherokee had been forced to cede it after their 1775 uprising. As a result, Clark's men and their families received a relatively friendly welcome by the settlers living there. These settlers were patriots by temperament, probably at least in part because the British government did not legally recognize their land claims in this area, but the patriot government did. Clark's retreat into this region spurred many of the locals, known as over-mountain men, to activate their militias and move east to confront the Loyalist forces under Patrick Ferguson, eventually leading to the Battle of Kings Mountain, which I hope to get to soon. Had the Cherokee still been in control of this region, Clark might have found himself with nowhere to go. His men would have probably had to surrender or fight to the death. Unfortunately for them, the Patriots still had this haven west of the mountains where they could regroup and attack again. To the north of this area, Watauga, where Clark's men had taken refuge, the Virginians under George Rogers Clark, who was no relation to Elijah Clark, had secured most of the land up to the Ohio River in what was known as the Kentucky County of Virginia. There were really no British settlements in the region, the few non-Indian settlements in this region were either Spanish or French settlers. As I've discussed most recently in episode 249, George Rogers Clark had been fighting off encroachments, mostly supported by British agents operating out of Detroit. Most of those who Clark and his Virginians were facing were native warriors. The most recent offensive against the Virginians had come in the spring of 1780, when tribes, mostly from Canada, came down armed with British weapons and supplies to attack the Spanish in St. Louis and Clark's Virginians in Cahokia. The closest Continentals were up at Fort Pitt in what is today western Pennsylvania. Although Clark had fought off the spring offensive, war chiefs among the Shawnee, Delaware, and Mingo thought that they were in grave danger of losing their lands and had formed a mutual defense pact to support one another. Further, small raiding parties across the Ohio River continued to incite terrors among isolated Virginia farms in the Kentucky region. In June, British officers, supplemented by native warriors, conducted several raids into Kentucky. Captain Henry Byrd, a British regular officer stationed in Detroit, 
marched a war party over 600 miles as part of the effort to retake the region. Byrd's loyalist warriors secured Martin Station, where he had used field artillery to threaten the stockade. The people inside had no choice but to surrender. As the natives plundered their property, Byrd took charge of the prisoners and eventually marched them back to Detroit over a six-week period. Byrd then went on to destroy a number of other outposts before his return to Detroit. The Virginians under Colonel Clark had built Fort Jefferson near the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. The fort was named after Virginia's current governor, Thomas Jefferson. While the fort itself was secure and established Virginia's presence in the region, it did not protect the many farms and homesteads in the surrounding area. Clark determined that he would need to lead a force across the Ohio River to exact retribution and deter further attacks. In late July, Clark assembled a force of about a thousand men. Most of these were locals who turned out with their local militia companies, but it also included his regiment of Virginia regulars. Pretty much all of the men who were called up for this expedition were experienced Indian fighters, including men such as Simon Kenton and Daniel Boone. With Clark was Colonel Benjamin Logan, a veteran of Pontiac's Rebellion and Lord Dunmore's War. Logan had been raised in Virginia and was one of the early settlers in Kentucky. Logan would lead one of Clark's three divisions. Colonel William Lynn also took command of a division. Lynn had served as scout for the Braddock expedition to Fort Duquesne way back in 1755. He also served on the Forbes campaign of 1758, along with a young Colonel George Washington, in the second British effort to retake Fort Duquesne. He was wounded during his service in Lord Dunmore's War in 1774. It's likely during this conflict that he first met George Rogers Clark. Like the others, Lynn had settled in Kentucky and was regularly involved in actions against the natives. Also joining the expedition from Louisville was a battalion under the command of James Harrod, a Pennsylvania native who had settled in Kentucky in 1774. Colonel Clark also took with him an artillery company with a brass six-pounder field gun that he had captured at Vincennes the year before. Now, even as Clark gathered his army, the native forces were on alert and hostile to any movements. A small hunting detail from the Louisville militia moved away from the main force as it traveled to meet up with Clark. They stumbled across an abandoned Indian camp and were shortly thereafter ambushed by a small group of native warriors. The group suffered ten casualties, including two killed and two wounded so badly that they had to be returned to Louisville for care. The other six wounded were able to make it to the rendezvous at Licking, where they remained to convalesce and protect the supplies left there. The fort that Clark established there at Licking as a supply base later became the site of the town of Cincinnati. On August 2, 1780, Despite insufficient food supplies, Clark's army began its march northward. Clark's division led the column, with Logan's division protecting the rear. To guard against ambush, Clark deployed the men in four separate lines, about 40 yards apart, with flankers to monitor for attackers. The 70-mile march was a difficult one, given that the men had to cut a road for wagons and the artillery. Clark's targets were two Indian towns that operated as supply bases for enemy raiders, Chillicothe 
and Pikue. The force reached Chillicothe on the evening of August 5th. Reconnaissance found the villagers were in the process of abandoning their homes. Word of the Virginians' arrival had reached the inhabitants, who had already begun their process of fleeing. The column rushed ahead to attack whoever might be left, but they found Chillicothe empty, although food left cooking over the fires indicated that some had fled just moments before their arrival. The Shawnee had set on fire a council house and the fort. The Virginians then went about looting what they could in the town and burning what they could not carry. This included all the buildings and several hundred acres of crops. Clark received word that the local Shawnee were prepared to stand and fight at Pikue, about 12 miles away. After two days at Chillicothe, Clark ordered his Virginians on a night march through a downpour. The weather ended up forcing the column to stop, so they didn't reach the fort until the following afternoon, August 8th. Pikuay was a center of activity for the Shawnee, who had settled in this region about 25 years earlier. It consisted of large log houses in a line that stretched about three miles. The homes were spread out so the residents could grow beans and corn in large gardens around their homes. On an elevation, the people had built a stockade for defense. It was also used as a meeting place for political gatherings and for the local council. Some records indicate that about 3,000 people lived at Pikaway before the war. With the advance of the Virginians, most of the women and children had fled the town. They had received the warning from either French settlers from Vincennes or from a deserter from Clark's army. Remaining to defend the town were about 450 warriors. Most were local Shawnee, but were being supported by Mingo, Wyandotte, and Delaware, as well as a handful of loyalists, all these warriors facing about 1,000 Virginia attackers. The chief commanding the defense was named Black Hoof, who had led the Shawnee into battle. Black Hoof was an experienced warrior. 25 years prior, he had been a warrior at the Battle of the Monongahela, near modern-day Pittsburgh. He and his fellow warriors decimated the British Army under General Braddock and gave young Colonel George Washington his first experience in a major battle. It's also believed that Black Hoof participated in the Battle of Point Pleasant during Lord Dunmore's War in 1774, and that he was also involved in the Siege of Boonesboro in 1778. He had pretty much devoted his life to staving off encroachments by Virginians into his tribal land. Now, as I said, Clark had divided his men into three divisions. Colonel Logan led one division along the river to prevent any Shawnee from escaping from Pikiwe to the east. Colonel Lynn led a second division against the defender's left flank. Colonel Clark brought his regulars and artillery against the center directly towards the stockade. Upon seeing the size of the attacking force, most of the warriors withdrew from the town. They were able to escape because Colonel Logan's forces, who were supposed to be in a position to attack these retreating men, got mired down in a swamp during their march and were unable to get into position in time. A portion of the Shawnee, though, stood and fought at Pikue. Among them was a loyalist Indian trader named Simon Gertie, who remained on the field despite the fact that the Americans had a price on his head, dead or alive, for his treason and support of Indian warriors who tortured and killed American prisoners. 
The fight lasted several hours, with each side attempting to outflank the other and sometimes getting involved in brutal hand-to-hand combat. The Virginians had to ford a river while taking enemy fire, and eventually the defenders of Picue withdrew and made their escape from the much larger force of attackers. After some time, Clark managed to bring up his cannon, which fired about 15 rounds into the stockade. The native defenders attempted to sally forth and take the cannon. Clark ordered two white flags raised and called for a ceasefire. The native warriors continued to move forward, causing the artillery company to abandon their cannon. At that point, Rogers ordered the white flags lowered and then simply fired on the enemy. This caused the advancing warriors to quickly disperse and flee into the cornfields, making their escape. During the battle, an American prisoner of the Shawnee, Joseph Rogers, attempted to escape and flee to American lines. He was shot during the battle, but managed to reach his cousin, George Rogers Clark, before dying in the colonel's arms. After the Indians had been dispersed, the Virginians spent the rest of the day trying to track down and kill any remaining enemy. That night, they camped around the burned remains of the enemy fort. The following day, the Virginians found a native man in the field tending to his wounded son. They executed both of them. They also executed a female prisoner that they had captured. In addition, they dug up several graves for the purpose of obtaining loot and scalps. In response, after the army withdrew, the Shawnee brought up several militia prisoners who had been captured weeks earlier. At the site of the destroyed town, the natives tied their prisoners to stakes and burned them alive. They also dug up the graves of several attackers who died in battle and scalped the corpses. Total casualties for the battle are unclear. Clark reported only 14 of his men killed and 13 wounded. However, a review of other witness accounts indicates that American casualties were probably three times that number. Clark also noted only five enemy dead and three wounded, but since the Shawnee often carried off their casualties, we have no real good records for them. Their losses were probably much higher as well, though. With Pukui in the possession of the Americans, Clark and his men sat about burning the town and all of the surrounding cornfields. They burned a nearby British trading post known as Loramie's Store, and passing back through Chillicothe on their return, they continued to destroy more crops in that area. Once back across the Ohio River on August 14th, they separated and the militia returned to their homes. Clark would end up traveling back to Richmond, where he attempted to get Governor Jefferson to back a larger invasion force that would take Detroit from the British. Among the witnesses of the destruction of Bikoe was a 12-year-old boy named Tecumseh. The future war chief observed the destruction of his hometown personally and carried the pain of that destruction with him for the rest of his life. In the end, the Shawnee abandoned Bikoe and established a new town about 20 miles further north. The loss of their crops led to a hungry winter and to a desire to seek revenge the following spring. Next week, we're going to head back to New England, where General Washington finally meets with his French counterpart, General Rochambeau, at the Hartford Conference in Connecticut. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I released this episode on Christmas Day 2022. It just so happened that Christmas fell on my normal release schedule date, so I figured I'd just go ahead. The great thing, of course, about podcasts is that you don't have to listen to them on release day. I hope everyone enjoys the day with your family, and you can listen to this one a few days later. I also owe an apology to my Patreon supporters who pledge at the $10 level or higher. I promise to send you a magnet each month with a different flag from the American Revolution. Unfortunately, this month got away from me with the holidays, so you can look forward to receiving two magnets from me in January. Thanks to my Patreon supporters at the Alexander Hamilton Club level, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Mike Gaylord. I mention these guys every week, but their dedicated support really has made this podcast possible, and it's allowed me to avoid dumping lots of commercials on it to cover my costs. So I think we all owe a great deal of thanks to my biggest supporters, and also to my Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard and Knox Press. Go to knoxpress.com to see their latest book releases. I also want to thank Larry Seltzer and Ryan Webster for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. Larry, it was great to see you at my holiday party last week, which I held for everyone who could make it from the American Revolution podcast. And thanks to everyone else who joined us in Mount Holly for our end-of-the-year celebration. If you want to receive information about future events, please be sure to get on my mailing lists at MailChimp. There are links to join my list on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com, and on my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. This week we saw more fighting between settlers and native warriors. Although the British were trying to use this to further their ends to put down the rebellion, this fighting was also part of a much larger and longer struggle between native forces and settlers who continued to move west. Several months after George Rogers Clark had conducted this raid, I mentioned that Clark headed to Richmond to lobby for a larger campaign against Detroit. During his visit to Richmond, Clark received a commission as a brigadier general in Virginia's army. The legislature also divided Kentucky County into three new counties, Lincoln, Fayette, and Jefferson. Virginia was clearly making plans to settle a much larger population into the region. Now, as I mentioned before, Virginia claimed land that stretched far to the north and west of its current boundaries, including all of what became known as the Northwest Territory, what is today Kentucky, West Virginia, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, 
and parts of Minnesota and Wisconsin. Virginia would cede most of these claims in the federal era, but Kentucky would be one of the first that it ceded, becoming the 15th state in 1792. George Rogers Clark was a big part of that. And if you're interested in reading more on Clark, I've already recommended a Clark biography by William Nestor in an earlier episode, and I do have a list of all my prior book recommendations available for you to review on my website. So this week, though, I'm picking a book that focuses more on the perspective of the Native tribes. The book is called The American Revolution in Indian Country, Crisis and Diversity in Native American Communities by Colin Calloway. It focuses on the Native experiences during the war. The book looks closely at eight different tribes and how they dealt with the American Revolution. The author, Calloway, is a professor of history and Native American studies at Dartmouth College, and he's written a wide variety of books focusing on Native American history. He published this one in 1995, so if this subject sounds interesting to you, look up The American Revolution in Indian Country, and there is a review copy on archive.org that you can borrow and take a look at. My online recommendation is an article on the National Park Service History website called George Rogers Clark and the Shawnee Expedition of 1780 by J. Martin West. This is a really good detailed look at the fighting itself from today's episode, and it's very well footnoted if you're looking for more primary information. As always, I've included links on my blog and website. My question this week comes from listener Steve Sunison, who asks, I know this is a subjective question to some extent, but who are, in your opinion, the top five American military leaders during the revolution and why? The criteria is how much did they militarily contribute to the ultimate victory compared to other American military leaders looking at all relevant facts and circumstances. Well, Steve, you're right. This is absolutely a subjective answer, and I'm sure many people will disagree with my choices. But since I've answered a question a couple weeks ago about the worst generals, I figured this was a good time to put out a list of the best ones. I have to put George Washington at number one. He may not have been the best battlefield strategist, but he held the army together through some incredibly difficult times and took military risks at just the right times to keep the movement alive. Few military commanders would have raided Trenton at Christmas in 1776. For that alone, he probably deserves to be on this list. His composure in battle was also considered legendary. For me, George Washington will always be the indispensable man. Now, my second choice is going to be really controversial, but I have to go with Benedict Arnold. While his later treason is enough to deny him any praise as a great man, his phenomenal military leadership kept the British from invading New York from Canada for nearly two years. His willingness to defy his commander after the invasion led to the British surrender at Saratoga, something I credit to Arnold and others, not Horatio Gates. If Arnold had died at Saratoga, we'd probably hail him as one of the greatest generals in American history. A third place on my list goes to Nathaniel Green. Although Green was unimpressive in the first few years of the war, he really grew into the job and was critical in setting up the final victory at Yorktown, as we're going to see in some future episodes. 
My fourth choice is someone who was not even a general for most of the war. Daniel Morgan was a critical force in most of the early battles. His riflemen made all the difference in many of the major campaigns, especially Saratoga. His later strategies in the Southern Campaign were also legendary. And again, you're going to see a lot of him in some of the future episodes. My final pick is John Glover, also not a general for much of the war. He was a colonel. But the support of his Marblehead Mariners in the retreat from Long Island saved the Army. His efforts to cross the Delaware River for the raid on Trenton were also something that I don't think any other officer could have accomplished. Now, there are, of course, a great many others who arguably could be on this list in place of some of my picks. But there you have it. Those are my top five. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. We do have a Facebook group. It's not terribly active at the moment, but I'm always there. I'm always looking to answer questions or start a dialogue. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>